Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. So, your business card says you're an independent Depeche Mode consultant? What does that mean? It means I freelance my encyclopedic knowledge of Depeche Mode to people who need to know something about the group. I've been studying every move the band has made since they were formed. For example, did you know that the earliest form of the group was called No Romance in China? No, I didn't. Or that their name Depeche Mode was taken from the title of a French fashion magazine. I heard that. And for years that has been wrongly translated as fast fashion. If you're going to be correct about the spirit of the translation, it should be fashion news update. I'm not sure that that's Or we a- could talk about the time the band hired a psychiatrist to be part of their road crew because everyone was so messed up at the time. They paid him four grand a week. Shall I go on? No, really, that, that's okay. Can Thank I you. tell you about my latest project? No. <laughs> it's on the radio right now. I was the executive consultant of a show called 25 Things About Depeche Mode after 25 years. I don't care. You don't want to hear about the fighter plane crash in Scotland? How can you possibly make a jet crash in the highlands of Scotland relevant to the history of Depeche Mode? You'll just have to hang around and listen then, won't you? Okay, let's roll. Check out. What? This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Depeche Mode and Precious, their first single from their 2005 album, Playing the Angel, which is their 11th studio album. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is a look at a band that's officially been around since 1980. That's more than a quarter of a century. An awfully long haul and an awfully tough business. Now, as you might expect, the history of Depeche Mode is pretty dense. And in the interest of symmetry... This show will contain 25 random facts about Depeche Mode from the last 25 years, presented in a very miscellaneous order. We've already covered the band's earliest name. That's one. Then there was the mistranslation of Depeche Mode from the original French. That's two. Number three, and again, we're going random here. Number three would be the psychiatrist that cost $4,000 a week. Let me explain this one. This shrink was part of a 120-member staff that accompanied the band on the tour for the album Songs of Faith and Devotion. Because every member of the group was dealing with various forms of depression and addiction, it was thought that having someone to listen to their problems on a road trip that extended through 156 shows over 15 months would probably be a good idea. Well, maybe it was a good idea. But then again, that 120-member staff also included a drug dealer, to make sure that guys like Dave Gahan were well supplied with cocaine and heroin. The psychiatrist was supposed to be on hand to counsel Dave away from drugs, but as it turned out on this tour, one of the most messed up and decadent tours in the history of rock and roll, the shrink was used by everyone in the group but Dave. So that's point number four. Number three was the psychiatrist on tour. Number four is the drug dealer on tour and how he counteracted the psychiatrist. And we're actually going to get back to this tour a little bit later on in the program. Hang tight for that. Let's make number five the fighter plane. It was September 1st, 1994. Former keyboardist Alan Wilder was driving through the Scottish countryside when out of nowhere, a Royal Air Force tornado, a fighter jet on a training mission, roared over his car and crashed 
less than 200 yards away. Wilder was covered with metal and glass and other debris, and the two pilots in the plane were killed instantly. Think that brush with death had an effect on his outlook on life? Well, you bet it did, because less than a year later, Alan Wilder left Depeche Mode for good. Strange Depeche Mode fact number six. In addition to making tons and tons of cash as the group's chief songwriter, Martin Gore is also a very shrewd real estate investor. One of his commercial properties is in the revitalized Docklands district of London. It generates more than a quarter of a million pounds in rent every year. And in a delicious piece of irony, one of the tenants is a branch of the bank where Martin used to work as a teller in the late 1970s. And speaking of real estate, Alan Fletcher has a restaurant in London called Gascons. It specializes in international cuisine and can be found just north of the famous Abbey Road Recording Studios in St. John's Wood in North London. Point number eight. Gascons has a bar called the Lotus Lounge. If you were ever tending bar, hope that you never, ever have to serve Martin Gore. The man was once very, 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 very much into binge drinking. One report says that Martin Gore once drank 67 pints of lager in a single sitting in Hamburg, Germany. It took 11 hours and a lot of trips to the bathroom, but 67 pints of beer for a guy who's five foot eight? Point number nine. Dave Gahan married his second wife, Teresa Conway, at the Graceland Chapel in Las Vegas. The music for the service was provided by an Elvis impersonator. As part of Dave's pledge of love, he had a new tattoo commissioned. It rent TCTTM slash FG. That stands for Teresa Conway to the Mother Blanker Gahan. How romantic and sweet. And strange Depeche Mode fact number 10. They were one of the first people to sign to a new all-synthesizer-based label called Mute in the fall of 1980. They struck a deal whereby all proceeds from the domestic releases would be split 50-50 with the label, and the money from international sales would be split 70-30. The trust between the group and Mute Records was so strong that no one got around to writing this down in a formal contract until 1986. Up until that time, it was all verbal and a handshake. Can you imagine? An arrangement like this today between a band and their record label? Fact number 11. Depeche Mode began as a... as a gospel group. Andrew Fletcher and founding member Vince Clark were born-again Christians as teenagers. Martin Gore and Dave Gahan, both essentially pagan unbelievers, were drawn to Andrew and Vince because they liked the hymns and devotional songs that they had heard Andrew and Vince sing. Are they religious now? Well, let's just say that spiritually both are, uh, well, they've kind of lapsed, if you know what I'm saying. Fact number 12. Guitars and real drums have gone in and out of favor with the band. And there was a long stretch in the middle part of their career where everything was electronic, 100% synthesized. But back in the very beginning, which would be the late 1970s, guitars did figure into Depeche Mode sound. Here's Dave. Two reasons, really. One, we felt that guitars restricted us 
yeah, the sound of the guitar is very limited and uh, we found synthesizers very, very interesting, just the sounds that you could get on them. And secondly, we had a lot of problems sort of transport-wise, getting somebody to, to take us around with all our amplifiers and things for the guitars. And um, we could just take the synths under our arms on a train and uh, mm -hmm. just turn up and plug direct into a, into a PA system. And it was just a lot easier in the early days. Items 13 through 18 have to do with the gargantuan excess of Depeche Mode's world tour that began in 1993 and extended through 1994. This was the unbelievably decadent devotional tour. Item 13. Each night, up to 20 of the most beautiful women in the audience were invited into special backstage VIP areas and hotel suites that were outfitted like the set of a porn movie. We could go deeper and talk about some of the S&M allegations that were made, but it's hard to separate legend and myth from reality, and this is kind of like, you know, a family show from time to time. Everyone was so drunk and or high that there's no reliable record of actually what happened backstage or in the hotels. We do know, however, that some of these ecstasy field parties lasted up to three days. And in case you were wondering, they flavored liquid ecstasy over pills. Item 14 is verifiable. September 8, 1993. Dave Cahan and touring keyboardist Daryl Bamonte are arrested and jailed after Dave punched the concierge of a Montreal hotel in the mouth. This was precipitated by a loud party in one of their suites, which generated so many complaints that the hotel cut their power. This is a related item. November 4, 1993. Martin Gore was arrested at the Weston Hotel in Denver after refusing to turn down the stereo at 4 in the morning. Back up to October 8th for item 16. October 8th, 1993. Dave is removed from backstage at a show in New Orleans by paramedics after he suffered a heart attack. He actually had a heart attack mid-show, but he somehow managed to finish the set. We might as well include the time in July of 1994 when he fell 12 feet off the stage in Indianapolis and broke a bunch of ribs. Item 17. One of the bands who opened for Depeche Mode on this tour was a group called Miranda Sex Garden. They quit the tour after the audience pelted them with rotten meat and dog excrement after one particularly bad show. And item number 18 deals with the aftermath of that tour. During the South African leg, Alan Wilder was diagnosed with kidney stones and then gallstones. After his sister died of stomach cancer, Andrew Fletcher teetered on the verge of a nervous breakdown and actually left the tour to seek treatment. Meanwhile, Martin Gore had a grand mal seizure during a business meeting. Too many drugs, too much drink. Dave Gahan's drug use was so severe that he pretty much stopped eating. At one point on this tour, he weighed slightly more than 100 pounds. And he got so stoned one night that in response to a journalist's question, Dave bit him on the neck. And then he almost killed himself, but we'll get to that later. Bottom line, touring with Depeche Mode in the 80s and 90s was not for the faint of heart. Despite everything that the band has gone through, there have really been only two lineup changes 
in the group's history. The first, which we will call item number 19 on our list, came right at the beginning. The date was December 1st, 1981. Founding member and chief songwriter Vince Clark decided that he wanted out. Why? Well, he didn't think the group had much of a future. Vince felt that he could do better on his own, and for a while his post-Depeche Mode projects were more successful. There was a group called Yazoo, who had a series of hits. Then there was Erasure, who has had a nice little career on their own. But if you want to compare overall album sales, which are somewhere above 50 million for Depeche Mode, um, probably wasn't such a good move, Vince. Then again, Martin Gore might not have been the songwriter had you stayed. That's another story entirely. On a semi-related note, since assuming the vast majority of songwriting duties, close to 98% of all Depeche Mode songs have been written in a minor key. Really, and, and apparently you can check. 98%. How many happy-sounding Depeche Mode songs are there? I mean, think about it. Strange Depeche Mode fact number 20. Lineup change number 2 was a direct result of the excesses and personality clashes that took over the band during the devotional tour of 93 and 94. On June 1st, 1995, Alan Wilder made it official. He could not take it anymore. He could not stand the excess. He could not stand not being able to write more of the music. And he could not stand any of his bandmates. He was done. And then there was the whole airplane thing that made him, you know, reassess things. Like I said, being associated with Depeche Mode is not for the faint of heart. And sometimes, you just got to know when to say when. When we come back, the final five strange Depeche Mode facts, and most of them have to do with, with, with Dave, one of the most self-destructive frontmen in the history of rock. Hold on. Welcome back to the final five items on our list of 25 strange things about Depeche Mode from the past 25 years. And all five have to do with singer Dave Gahan. Item 21. Dave has had some issues regarding his parentage. When he was three, his parents divorced and his mom remarried. Stepdad was then presented to Dave as his real dad. Stayed that way until he was 10, which is when he found out the truth, and that really messed him up for a while. Which leads us to item number 22. As a teenager, he went to juvenile court three times for things like stealing cars and vandalism. He went through 20 different jobs in just six months. The only thing that saved him was enrolling in art college. This relates to item number 23. After three years, he ended up with something called a British Display Society Award, which means if the singing thing ever falls through, he is qualified to design uh, display windows for stores with, you know, mannequins and stuff. All right, item number 24. And we've already talked a little bit about some of Dave's tattoos. He really likes ink. He has one design that took 10 hours to create. But that's not the most... Um, painful adornment that Dave has sported. He once had something called a geish. G-E-I-S-H. A geish. This is a piercing of the area um, it's the uh, behind the scrotum. I, I know, I know, but, but Dave had heard that it was the most erotic place to be pierced. It, it was very painful and uncomfortable, but that wasn't why he had it removed. One of his kids saw it one day when Daddy was taking a shower and asked him, Daddy, why do you have an earring down there? So he 
you know, taking it. And item number 25, our last one, is, is kind of a long one. It's the long, drawn-out, near-death experience that lasted from late in the spring of 1995 through to a brief but actual death in 1996. During this time, Dave existed on little more than heroin and water. His habit cost $3,000 a day. He became so spaced out in his apartment in Santa Monica that he spent long hours in conversation with his collection of stuffed animals. He apparently carried on deep conversations with a particular Bugs Bunny doll. It was when Bugs started contributing to the conversations that things began to really get weird. There was also a doll called the Tin Man, who apparently had some interesting things to say, too. He did leave the apartment occasionally, usually just to check the mail, but every time he did, he had a thirty-eight revolver tucked in his pants. After a trip to rehab in Arizona, yes, yes, he did need rehab, he returned to his house in Los Angeles only to find that it had been looted in his absence. Two suicide attempts followed, and there was a period in a psychiatric ward when it was discovered he was cutting himself with a razor blade. Everything came to a head on May 27, 1996. After flying back to L.A., after trying to record some stuff with Martin Gore in New York, Dave checked into the Sunset Marquee Hotel in Hollywood and began injecting a mixture of cocaine and heroin. At 1.15 in the morning of the 28th, an anonymous woman called 911 and an ambulance rushed to the hospital. Dave was found on the floor in full cardiac arrest. He was, for all intents and purposes, clinically dead for two full minutes. He now says he remembers a vision of his wife screaming at him to come back to this plane. He also remembers a loud voice saying something like, This is wrong! You don't get to decide! And then suddenly he was back on Earth. This was the low point, but from what we can tell, Dave began to get his life straightened out after the summer of 1996, and now is healthier than he's been in decades. In fact, I can give you a date. Dave has not had a drink or taken any drugs since June 6th, 1996. He's now running four times a week and has a nice apartment in the West Village area of New York and is with Jennifer, his third wife. And how do we know what really got Dave clean? The American government said, look, dude, if you don't go into rehab, And if you don't stay straight for two years, and if you don't submit to regular drug testing, we will take away your green card. Well, guess what? That threat was so scary that it scared him straight. Obviously, when a band's been around for as long as Depeche Mode, there's a lot of ground to cover. You just can't sum them up in just 25 bite-side factoids. So, with that in mind, here are a couple of bonus notes. There have been so many remixes of Behind the Wheel from Music for the Masses, both of the legal and illegal variety, that no one, no one in Depeche Mode knows exactly how many there are. When the band is on tour, Andrew Fletcher likes to organize walking tours of whatever city they happen to be in. His home is in the Maida Vale area of London. And speaking of which, Martin Gore lives in Santa Barbara, California, which is where his ex-wife now owns a spa. So we got Martin living in California. There's Dave in New York and Andrew in London. When they're on the road, Martin and Andrew share a dressing room. Dave gets his own. That owes more to Dave's need to be away from the temptations of backstage life than anything else. 
Three members of the band were once beaten up by a group of Hell's Angels outside a bar in Madrid. Apparently it was Dave's fault for looking at a biker girl kind of funny. And one more. No one, including the band, their record company, their management, and their families, can believe that after all this, Depeche Mode is still together. And now that I think of it, neither can I. Technical production for everything is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 